each a number of lessons, and we are just so glad they could be here, especially with Mr. Whitehead gone today. Really appreciate Scott's leadership in our music, and he'll be with our choir this afternoon, and uh, really glad they could be here. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans, and I will have you go initially to Romans chapter 5. Uh, the focus of our attention as our service guide notes will be Romans chapter 8, but I want to pick up some context here in Romans 5. And for the sake of our regulars, let me mention that in light of uh, some of the unique schedule patterns in the summer, I'm going to pause our forward movement in Matthew, and I want to spend the next several weeks uh, studying together this eighth chapter of the book of Romans. Um, There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. And Wilbur Smith, a highly respected theologian and Bible teacher in the 1900s, he said this, he said, I have always felt, and in this area many will agree with me, that the eighth chapter of Romans is the greatest chapter in the Bible. Uh, Martin Luther actually referred to this chapter as the masterpiece of the New Testament. And I could go on and on with superlatives, various commentators used to describe uh, this chapter. But one of the reasons why this chapter is such a blessing is because it describes a great deal of what life is like for the believer... Uh, under a phrase and a concept that is mentioned here in Romans 5. And that's why I want us to start here. If you look at verse 20, and then we're going to read right into verse 21. Notice Romans 5 and verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, Even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Now throughout the fifth chapter there's been a contrast being made between our many offenses against God and the one obedient life and sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Many offenses, one life, one death of Jesus Christ. And as the Apostle wraps up that emphasis, uh, that even though you and I have sinned again and again and again, day after day for years, think of that. How many times do we sin in any one given day? And then think of that day by day by day for years. And every last one of those sins, whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point is guilty of all. Every last one of those makes us worthy of death and hell. In spite of the magnitude of that, if you will simply trust in the complete obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, His obedience in life and in death, if you will trust in that, God will declare you right with him, righteous in his sight. Now that condition can be described as the one in verse 21 where grace reigns. 
And Jesus is the provision for grace reigning unto man's eternal salvation. And I'm about to make a couple of statements uh, concerning what comes next in Romans 6 and Romans 7. At one level, these are way too simple and way too brief, but they need to be for our purposes this morning, and I think they will help us. But chapter 6 and chapter 7 are like two different parentheses after this conclusion of chapter 5. In chapter 6, and I know this is a simple statement, but in chapter 6, where grace reigns, sin doesn't reign. That is a prevailing theme in chapter 6. The grace of God breaks sin's dominion over the believer. Where grace reigns, sin doesn't reign. Then in chapter 7, where grace reigns, the law doesn't reign. Again, the grace of God in the life of the believer does what the law and what no external law can do. After those two parentheses, we move into chapter 8. And what we still encounter is that deliverance from sin's dominion and the law's dominion doesn't mean the believer has no difficulties to face. One of the difficulties a believer still faces is the remaining presence and influence of an anti-God nature. We'll explore this more, but it's referred to in verse 1 for the first time as the what? What is the label for this depraved nature in us? It is the flesh. And we're going to see 12 occurrences of the flesh in the first 17 verses of this 8th chapter. And we're going to see four other occurrences of sin in these same verses. And the reality is that sometimes the struggle with our flesh can be so fierce. And believers can feel so defeated that they actually lose sight of the reign of God's grace in their lives as they battle the flesh. And another of the realities that believers still struggle with under the reign of grace is the topic mentioned in verse 18. If you'll come down there as the sufferings. Do you see that in verse 18? The sufferings of this present time. And in terms of how the sufferings make us feel, at times, look at verse 22. You can see a reference in verse 22 to all of creation doing what? All of creation groaning. And go right in the next phrase, not just groaning, but travailing in pain. And sometimes when believers face these kinds of things i know i'm just dipping in but look at come down to verse 35 and right in the middle of the verse when we face the kinds of things that are under these labels do you see tribulation continue reading tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword and sometimes when we face those and we are really groaning and travailing in pain, sometimes the believer can feel incredibly insecure 
and again lose sight of the reign of God's grace in their lives. And whether we are experiencing some insecurity in light of the struggle with our flesh or in light of the pain that we are facing uh, in, in reference to the sufferings of this present time, or maybe somebody would say both. <laughs> when a true believer is living insecure, it opens up a whole can of worms, so to speak. Sometimes we have trouble just being uh, open, even in confessing our sin to the Lord. Sometimes bitterness starts to develop towards God. Sometimes we find it very hard to pray. And certainly when I'm in that kind of case, it's hard to be in a place to evangelize others. And and on and on the ramifications go. The insecurity in the relationship actually starts to minister distance in terms of how I subjectively feel about it. Instead of ministering close, warm fellowship with the Lord. But, again, to go back to that phrase, under the reign of grace, right in the middle of these battles with the flesh and the groaning of sufferings in this present time, the gospel declares to the believer in Christ, you are still secure. Look again at how chapter 8 opens in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And I want to have you come all the way down to verse 39. And I know we're jumping in the middle of a sentence. But I want us to see how the chapter closes. In verse 39 it says, Nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this chapter with book in statements proclaims that if you are in Christ, there is first of all no condemnation. And there is secondly no separation. No separation particularly from the love of God. And brethren, if there is no possibility of being condemned and there is no possibility of being separated, then, my brother or sister in Christ, you are secure today under the reign of God's grace in Jesus Christ. That's the big picture of Romans chapter 8. Now, I want to come back this morning to verse 1. And I do want us to explore precisely what it means to not be condemned. What does it mean to not be condemned? And depending on how much marking you might do in the margins of your Bible, you you might want to make note of the fact that this exact term, condemnation, occurs in only two other places in our New Testament. And both of them are right here in Romans. And they're actually back in chapter 5. So if you'll go back there. The first one is... Chapter 5, verse 16, and the second is verse 18. I want to look at verse 16. 
And again, for our specific purpose, look right in the middle of the verse, begin reading. Do you see this phrase, for the judgment? That's where I want us to look. For the judgment was by one to condemnation. But the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. So we need to keep in mind that whatever condemnation is, it is the opposite of the last word there, justification. And from observing that term to this point many times in this book, justification we know means to be declared right or to be declared righteous with God. That is, it means that God, God declares me and God treats me as if I have met all my obligations to him. Condemnation is the opposite. Condemnation at a minimum is to be declared and to be treated as if guilty of crime against God. Now look two verses later at verse number 18. Notice verse 18, therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. So again, you see what we're saying, that term condemnation is set in opposition to justification, but this time we have this explanation, justification of life. And the idea is justification that leads to life. That's the idea of that phrase. The end result of God declaring and treating a man as if he is right with him is that this man is set free from guilt of sin so that he is able to live, to truly enjoy eternal life. And again, the opposite is true of condemnation. When God holds a man guilty before him, that man is sentenced to what? He is sentenced to die. And the fact that death is the penalty of sin is emphasized all the way through the Bible. But again, we'll just stay here in chapter 5. Look at verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world... And death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. It's emphasized again in the verse that immediately precedes our, our first use of condemnation in verse 16. If you go again the middle of verse 15, we have the phrase, through the offense of one, many be what? Many be dead. All right? So in the context in which this term translated condemnation is used, there is reference to being sentenced to death. Now, I've told you that the specific word translated condemnation is found just these three times. I do want to make you aware of a related term I'm not going to have us turn to other references, but Matthew and Mark both use this related term to talk about Jesus telling his disciples what was going to happen when they went to Jerusalem. Here is Matthew, please don't turn away. Here's Matthew 20 and verse 18. Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, 
the Son of Man shall be betrayed by the chief priests and under the scribes, and they shall, listen to this, they shall condemn him to death. That, that is exactly what the Pharisees did. They sentenced Jesus to die because he claimed to be the Son of God. Perhaps an illustration would help us think again about this term. One of the more celebrated trials of uh, the past century in the 1900s, it took place from November of 1945 to October of 1946. It was the first of 13 trials to be held in Nuremberg, Germany. The defendants on trial at Nuremberg were former members of the Nazi party. They were brought before an international tribunal where they were charged for crimes against humanity. And the first of those trials, the one I'm referring to, and, and a trial that, think of this, lasted for 11 months. There were 22 men brought before that tribunal. At the conclusion of those 11 months, eight judges acquitted three of those men. They found seven other men guilty of crime, but not crime worthy of death. They sentenced them to jail time ranging from 10 years up to life in prison. But 12 of those men were found guilty of charges of such seriousness that they were to be hung by the neck until dead. That was the sentence. And I'm using that to just come back to this. That is what it means to be condemned. Condemnation like that is not remedial imprisonment. It is a death sentence. And brethren, I do want to remind us this morning that if we had to stand before God on our own, that would be the just sentence passed against every one of us. I know we read this morning Romans chapter 1, but would you go back there? I just want to dip into a couple of these statements again now in this context. Chapter 1 and verse number 18 the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold, uh, hold down, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Well, what are, again, some samples of that ungodliness and unrighteousness that provoke God to wrath? Well, we read all the way through this section, but would you just skip down to verse 29 right now? And think again about the sins that fall into this category. And, and now I want us, as we go through this, would you think about whether you've committed any of these? Verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, which is just general violation of God's law. Fornication. Any form of romantic intimacy outside of marriage wickedness some say that the particular term is closely associated to the next one 
which is covetousness, refers to immoral ways to get gain. Maliciousness would be ill will, like a desire to injure somebody. Full of envy, and a number of these are straightforward. Murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, maybe we don't know that one as much, that's unforgiving, unmerciful, and again, you think about the list, and no one here this morning can honestly claim they haven't been hit by several of those expressions, if not all of them. But again, take note of what follows. Who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death. And what follows is particularly characteristic of a reprobate mind. When they know these things make us worthy of death, they not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. And the point for all of us, again, is that one occasion of fornication, one occasion of desiring to injure someone, one occasion of pride. One occasion of disobedience to parents. One occasion of a deceitful report. <laughs> one occasion of each and every one of these makes us worthy of death. And all those things are forbidden by God's law, which you look at chapter 3, and I'm trying to work our way back to chapter 8. Look at chapter 3 and verse 19, and notice, now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become what? Guilty before God. The law of God was given so that men could clearly know what sin is and understand their guilt before God. Then in this case, there's no international tribunal, right? There's no just collective moral judgment of society. God is... God alone is the judge, may become guilty before God. And when a man or woman transgresses God's law, they're guilty of sin in God's sight. And look at chapter 6, again another familiar text, but verse 23, you all know this, that opening phrase, the wages of sin is what? It is death. This is the penalty earned by the crime of sin against God. 
Brethren, this is the sentence pronounced against your sin and mine. And when it comes to the judgment bar of God, there are only two options. There is either full acquittal. And again, justification is that theological term. There's either full acquittal or there is the death sentence. And condemnation is the theological term. There's no temporary imprisonment of any sort before the judgment bar of God. And we need to be very clear that guilty sinners escaping the death sentence is not on account of God just choosing for whatever reason to overlook man's criminal activity against him. God doesn't exempt anyone on account of the fact that, well, you, you were born and lived in an underprivileged state. You know, you've had a really hard life. Someone's treated you poorly. And God doesn't exempt anyone because they were born in a privileged state. <laughs> then because they've, you know, attended church and given the charity and been a good neighbor or anything of the sort. God doesn't exempt anyone because they've tried to live a Christian life. Crime committed against God in the form of breaking his law has to be paid for. But what makes the gospel the greatest news that has been told is that in Christ, my condemnation, and I hope when you hear that again this morning, you think death sentence. The death sentence against my sin has actually already been executed. But it's been executed in Christ. Look all the way back now to chapter 8 and verse 3. And we're going to come back to various phrases here. But just to catch this picture, look at verse 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh so the law opening phrase could not make me righteous in god's sight and it could not because there's a problem with the law but because in that second phrase weak through the flesh the problem is the way my fleshly rebellious nature responds to god's law but god dealt with my crime against him not through the law but through sending his own son to actually take on the form of man. that This is the incarnation. This is what the likeness of sinful flesh, that phrase is referring to. Jesus didn't have the fleshly nature, but he took on the same flesh and blood body of sinful man. And you can see the very next phrase tells us he did it for our sin. Why did Jesus Christ take on a flesh and blood body? He did it so that he could become our sin offering. Like the Passover lamb of the Old Testament. And the specific Greek words used here are used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to refer to the sin offering. When my sin was transferred to the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, 
Notice the last phrase again of the verse. God condemned my sin in Jesus' flesh. And I know I've added those, but this is what, this is what he's communicating there. He's using the term flesh now as a play on words for effect, but, but don't miss the changed nuance. When he speaks of the weakness of my flesh earlier, he's referring to my sin nature. But when he talks now at the last phrase about, about condemning sin in the flesh, the flesh is none other than the body of Jesus Christ. So again, here's the communication that God executed the condemnation. That is, God executed the death sentence for my sins. When the sinless man, Jesus Christ, died by crucifixion and shed his blood, God condemned my sin in the flesh and blood body of Jesus Christ. And if you are here in Christ, there is no death sentence pronounced against you, and there never will be, not merely because God will overlook your sin, but because the condemnation for your sin has already taken place when Jesus Christ died in your behalf. Justification and condemnation, they're they're judicial words. They belong to a courtroom scene. And, you know, we have a feature of our judicial system that is referred to as double jeopardy. And I was looking up several examples of this, the this one, I think, is as helpful as any. This one was from 1989, U.S. versus Halper. But they said double jeopardy being tried for the same offense is prohibited by the Fifth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. It protects against three specific abuses. One, it protects against a second prosecution for the same offense after acquittal. A second prosecution for the same offense after conviction. And multiple punishments for the same offense. It protects against those. Well, brethren, we have protection that is far beyond the Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. In God's justice system, there is also no double jeopardy. If you have savingly believed on Christ then the full extent of the law has already been prosecuted against your sin and it was done so in the death of Jesus Christ. And we're just about done this morning, but let me be clear on several fronts where maybe our minds could leak out a little bit and miss something. The fact that I am not condemned obviously does not mean that the sin nature is just removed. And when people don't realize that, they can become disillusioned at the struggle. We also need to be clear that condemnation is not the same thing as God's disapproval. We ought to feel God's disapproval when we have done wrong. I mean, Ephesians 4, James 5 are just a couple of places where we realize It is possible even for a believing person to affect God's spirit emotionally against us. Grieve not 
the Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed to the day of redemption. The absence of any threat of condemnation also doesn't mean that that a person who sins is just exempt from all consequences of sin in this life. If you sin against the Lord as a Christian, though you repent, you may still face some of the harvest from fleshly seeds that have been sown. And the reality is, you may also experience the direct discipline of not a judge, but direct discipline of a heavenly Father. And whom the Lord loveth, he what? Yeah, he chastens and he has multiple rods at his disposal. But with those clarifications out there, I'll come back to this. When there is pain connected to sin, our minds should not go to, why is God condemning me? God is not condemning you. God will not condemn you. Your sins have already been condemned. They are condemned in Christ. You'll never be brought into a legal court. You'll never have him make a charge against you and find you guilty. Again, I, I know the illustrations, if, if you're in Christ, you are as secure as Noah and his family were in the ark. <laughs> and if you're, if you're in Christ, you're secure as those in Egypt who had the blood over the doorpost when the death angel passed through that land. I mean, you're secure there. Some people fear that this kind of teaching could lead to a license to sin and a carefree attitude towards sin. I'll add that along the way here in Romans 8, we're going to be warned about about, uh, a false sense of security, and that may well show up in a carefree attitude towards sin. But the fact is, when someone has truly come under the weight of those truths, it encourages being honest in confession about sin. It encourages drawing near even the one that we've grieved, but the one who, at, who has and will extend forgiveness. You can think about this in relationships, if you've had a loving relationship with an earthly father. When a child... When a child fears that a parent might respond to their sin with a refusal to forgive, that child will have a greater tendency to hide sin and develop a hard spirit that pushes them away. But when a child knows that some painful discipline may well be in the path, but it's going to be administered by a loving, forgiving father, that child has a far greater tendency to be open, and to be honest in general and confessing sin in particular. In fact, dealing with sin in that kind of environment actually tends to strengthen the relationship in spite of whatever pain has been along the way. Now, the reality is that every one of us has had, Hebrews 12 says, fathers, that from time to time have disciplined us inappropriately. And
I know I can say for every father. In here, when we have misrepresented God, it breaks our hearts. But we can also say this. If you are a true child of God, justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, God, your heavenly Father, always corrects you for your own good. And though you might right now have an agonizing struggle with sin, you can be absolutely assured that there is not now, nor will there ever be, any threat of condemnation. If you're in Christ, he's already taken on him your condemnation, and you are eternally secure in him. There is therefore now no condemnation, and there is no possibility of separation from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes, and I just want to give you opportunity this morning to talk with your Heavenly Father about your life under the reign of His grace. Maybe a life that is right now in the pain of some agonizing struggle with your flesh. Or some agonizing struggle with the sufferings of this present time and the groaning and travailing. And maybe without our minds renewed, it's, it's brought some distance instead of drawn us close. I just want to give you time alone with the Lord this morning.